Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a charge in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to serve to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. May God bless to us that further reading from his word. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Let's pray. O Lord, there are things in your word which we find hard to understand. But we recognize that this letter was sent to ordinary Christians just like us, Christians who were struggling with their faith. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through these words, that you would strengthen our faith as we see more of our Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Imagine the scene. It's a beautiful day. The sky is cloudless and the sun is shining. But inside a rundown house, a man sits in a dingy room. Heavy old curtains are drawn across the window. The only light comes from a 60-watt bulb hanging precariously from the ceiling. Instead of opening the curtains and let, letting daylight flood into the room, the man sits and admires the dim artificial light of the artificial bulb. In our studies over the past few weeks, 
we've seen how the letter to the Hebrews was written to Christians, Jewish Christians, who were tempted to give up on their newfound faith. Persecution may have been a factor. Christianity was beginning to be seen by the Roman authorities as a threat to the good order of the empire, whereas Judaism enjoyed a degree of official protection. Some of the Jewish converts may have missed the colorful practices which were part and parcel of their old faith. They may have wanted to go back to the bells and smells. Others may simply have begun to doubt if Christianity was all it was cracked up to be. Whatever reasons his readers may have had for wanting to give up on Christianity, the writer of this letter tries to get across that to return to Judaism would make no more sense than for someone to sit in a room admiring a 60-watt bulb when the sun was shining in all its brilliance outside. Christianity is better than Judaism in every way. Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater too than Moses, the leader who rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And he offers far more than the Jewish religion ever could. Our passage this evening focuses on two aspects of Judaism, priesthood and covenant. The writer argues that in the Christian gospel, we have a better priest and a better covenant. I think we need to unpack a little of the Old Testament background That would have been so familiar to the first readers of this letter. After rescuing the Israelites through Moses from slavery in Egypt, God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. That covenant came to be known as the Mosaic or Old Covenant. It was an agreement or contract between God and the Israelites. On the one hand, God promised to be the Israelites' God. On the other, the covenant laid down how the Israelites were to live as the people of God. The Ten Commandments were part of that. There were also detailed rules regarding how the Israelites were to approach the Lord and worship him. They were to appoint priests. Those priests were required to belong to one particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. That's why the priests are often described as Levitical priests. They belonged to the Levitical priesthood. And those priests had to offer sacrifices. Well, says the writer of this letter, in Judaism, you have priests, you have a high priest, you have a covenant, the Mosaic covenant, but in Christianity, you have a better priest and a better covenant. He says that Jesus is a better priest. Why does he say that? The basic function of a priest was to represent men and women before God. 
and in particular to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The priest was an intermediary or go-between. In chapters 4 and 5 of his letter, the writer has shown how Jesus is a great high priest fitted to be our representative because when he lived on earth, he was tested and tempted in every respect just as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be human from the inside He became a man, a real man. He lived an authentic human life. Here in chapter 7, the writer picks up the theme of priesthood again as he emphasizes that Jesus is a better priest than anything Judaism could offer. And he gives us basically three reasons why Jesus is a better priest. First of all, he's a better priest because his priesthood is of a superior order. His priesthood is of a superior order. You might think that what the writer would say would be along lines such as, the Levitical priests, the Levitical priesthood, they offered sacrifices to God. They acted as the representatives of their fellow men and women before God. Jesus is the real mediator. He's the real go-between. And as our representative, he is offered the real sacrifice for sin. Now that he has lived and died and risen again, we don't need the Levitical priesthood. Well, all that is true. But the writer here says something more. Not only does Jesus fulfill all that the Levitical priesthood symbolized, his priesthood is of a different order altogether. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He belongs to what is by definition a superior order of priesthood. That's one reason why he's a greater priest. What the the writer has to say about Melchizedek would have fascinated the first readers of this letter. There's evidence that in the first century... There was a lot of speculation among the Jews as to who this Melchizedek was. I suspect that for us today, discussion of Melchizedek is perhaps a little less riveting. Melchizedek is a shadowy character. Apart from the references made to him in this letter, he's referred to only in the two passages which were read earlier, Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. In the Genesis narrative, he's described as king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met the patriarch Abram when he was returning from the defeat of his enemies in battle. And he pronounced a blessing on him. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In response, Abram gave Melchizedek 
a tenth of the spoils. In doing so, he effectively acknowledged that he owed his victory to God and that Melchizedek was invested with God's authority. That's really all Genesis tells us about Melchizedek. He appears from nowhere and he disappears again. And we know nothing more about him. The writer to the Hebrews comments, verse 3 of chapter 7, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Does that mean that Melchizedek was some kind of supernatural being? Probably not. When the writer says he was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, he may simply mean that we know nothing about his antecedents or about what happened to him later. And when he goes on to say that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God and continues a priest forever, I don't think he's saying that Melchizedek never died. All he's saying is that the Old Testament tells us nothing about his death. For that reason, it's as if his priesthood goes on and on. To that extent, he resembles Jesus, whose priesthood really does go on and on. His priesthood lasts forever. The few other things we're told about Melchizedek also help us to see in him a picture of Jesus. His name, the actual name means king of righteousness. And he was king of Salem, possibly the place that later came to be known as Jerusalem. Salem being from the same Hebrew root as the word for peace, shalom. King of righteousness, king of peace. Don't these descriptions remind you of Jesus? He came into this world to make peace between man and God. And he lived a life of perfect righteousness. It's interesting, too, that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. In the Old Testament, there was a strict separation between kingship and priesthood. No king could be a priest. No priest could be a king. But Jesus, like Melchizedek, is a king as well as a priest. The fact that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek also explains how he can be a priest despite not belonging to the tribe of Levi. As the writer points out in verses 13 and 14, Jesus was a member of the tribe of Judah. And no member of the tribe of Judah could be a priest could be a Levitical priest. But Jesus is a priest because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. How then do we explain this man, Melchizedek? If he was an ordinary man, how was he a representative of true God-focused worship in the midst of a pagan society? How did he know and worship the true and living God? We simply don't know. There's profound mystery here. 
Perhaps we can ask Melchizedek these questions when we meet him in heaven. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us all we might want to know, but it does tell us all we need to know. The essential point we need to grasp is that Melchizedek's is a superior order of priesthood. To make this point, the writer uses in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 7 a type of argument which would have appealed to his Jewish readers. He reminds them how Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. And he argues like this, Abram was the father of the Jewish race. He was the great-grandfather of Levi. Because Abram gave, gave Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of the spoils, it could be said that Abram's great-grandson Levi effectively paid tithes to Melchizedek too through Abraham. Levi and his descendants were entitled to receive tithes from their fellow Israelites. But through their ancestor Abram, even Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. That highlights, the writer argues, that Melchizedek's is a superior order of priesthood. And that's the order of priesthood to which Jesus belongs. Jesus is a greater priest because his priesthood is of a superior order. But the second reason for Jesus being a greater priest is that his is an effective priesthood. His is an effective priesthood. Look with me, please, at verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The writer is implying that perfection couldn't be attained, couldn't be achieved through the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood provided no ultimate solutions. The sacrifices they offered in accordance with the Mosaic law secured ritual or ceremonial cleansing, but they didn't actually make a sinner righteous. They didn't make anyone perfect. The blood of animals couldn't possibly atone for the sins of human beings. All the Mosaic system could do was point worshippers beyond itself to the one who would one day come and pay the price of sin. In the words of verse 18, the Mosaic law in itself made nothing perfect. But in Jesus, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus provides a better hope because through him we are guaranteed access to God. We can get through to God on the basis of his sacrifice because his sacrifice really atones for sin. It fully meets the requirements of God's justice and we are assured of pardon and reconciliation. 
The fact that Jesus is now in heaven underlines that his sacrifice has been accepted. The opening verses of chapter 8 focus on the fact that Jesus is in heaven. He's in the true tent that God set up, not man. And in verse 1 we're told that there he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The Levitical priest doing his duty in the temple, didn't sit down. He was in his feet all the time because he had work to do. But Jesus is seated at God the Father's right hand because he has accomplished the work that was given him to do. The work of atonement is complete. Sin has been atoned for once for all. The hymn writer Isaac Watts puts it well. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience needs no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, and now it pleads before the throne. An essential aspect of Jesus' atonement is that he was sinless. The writer emphasizes that in verses 26 to 28 of chapter 7. Look at what he says. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need like those high priests, the Levitical priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The problem with the Levitical priesthood was that they were themselves sinners. They needed to offer sacrifices on their own behalf as well as on behalf of of others. Imperfect priests couldn't offer perfect sacrifices. But Jesus had no sin of his own. It was the sin of others he bore when he died on the cross. He died the righteous in place of the unrighteous. That's why his sacrifice was effective. A sinner cannot atone for his own sin, let alone ours. But a sinless Savior can atone for the sins of all who put their trust in him. Jesus lived a perfect life and so was able to offer a perfect sacrifice. Our sin became his and his righteousness becomes ours. His priesthood is effective. Jesus is a greater priest because his priesthood is of a superior order, because his priesthood is effective, but also because his priesthood is eternal. Again and again, the writer of Hebrews stresses that Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In verse 16 of chapter 7, 
the writer says that Jesus has become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. By rising again from the dead, Jesus has conquered death. And now, as the living and ascended Savior, he exercises an eternal priesthood. How different he is from the Levitical priests. As the writer says in verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there was a succession of priests. When one died, another took his place. But when Jesus died, he rose again. He needs no successor because he lives to die no more. And because his priesthood is eternal, all who trust in him are assured of eternal security. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Our living high priest, having made sacrifice for sin once for all, will ensure that each of his blood-bought brothers and sisters will get safely home to glory. He intercedes for us in heaven. His voice on behalf of his people is never silent. In the face of all the dangers and difficulties that confront us all on the way, Jesus looks after our interests and he will let nothing separate us from his love. His very presence at God's right hand is a living insistence that God's love must not let us go. Jesus is a greater priest. His priesthood is of a superior order. His priesthood is effective. His priesthood is eternal. Secondly, and much more briefly, Jesus brings into effect a better covenant. For one thing, the new covenant he introduces is enduring. The Mosaic Covenant was only provisional. It was ordained by God, but only for a time. It applied only until Jesus came. In verse 13 of chapter 8, the writer comments that in speaking of a new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, obsolescence was written into the DNA of the Mosaic Covenant. But the New Covenant is different. It's here to stay. It's enduring. And why is it enduring? Because, unlike the Mosaic Covenant, it is effective. We've already seen how the problem of sin has now been dealt with objectively. Jesus has offered a sacrifice that fully and finally atones for sin. But in chapter 8, what the writer focuses on is the fact that 
the subjective experience of those who enjoy the blessings of the new covenant is qualitatively different. What do I mean by that? Well, in a nutshell, the new covenant offers a personal relationship with God and real, genuine, transformational change. The writer quotes extensively from Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet predicts the establishment of the new covenant. What makes that covenant different is that the law of God is no longer an external code. It's no longer out there. Instead, it is internalized. It is in here. People's hearts are changed so that they begin to want to do what the law requires. It's worth reading verses 10 to 12 of chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The Mosaic Covenant told people how they should live. But it couldn't itself bring about moral change. It couldn't change people on the inside. We've seen that in our studies in Romans on Sunday mornings. The law was weak. It was powerless on account of our sinful natures, on account of the flesh. But through his death, Jesus has not only paid the penalty of sin, but he has also broken its power. Christians are no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin has been mortally wounded, even though it takes a long time to die. And Christians have the Holy Spirit living within us. He's in the business of making us more like the Lord Jesus. And through the Spirit, we know God in a way that Old Testament believers never could. The new covenant is not only enduring, it's effective. In Jesus, in Christianity, we have a better priest and a better covenant. The two themes are brought together in an interesting way in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 7 where the writer says, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, that is Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What the writer is saying is that the Levitical priests were simply born into the role. Just as it's likely that Prince William will one day succeed to the throne on account of what we often describe as an accident of birth, 
All the Levitical priests needed to do was to be born into a priestly family. But Jesus became a priest on the basis of God the Father's oath. That means that his priesthood is underwritten by Almighty God. His priesthood is for that reason unassailable. It cannot be challenged. And in the same way, the covenant he inaugurated is underwritten by God himself. Its promises are copper-bottomed. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, the better priest guarantees the better covenant. We may not be tempted to ditch Christianity for Judaism. I suspect few of us have Jewish blood in our veins. And possibly for none of us is Judaism the obvious alternative to Christianity. But if we're Christians, we probably find our faith under pressure from time to time. It's not easy to be a Christian in a secular society. It's not easy to swim against the tide. It's not easy to trust in an unseen God whom our friends and colleagues so readily dismiss. And sometimes, if we're honest, the demands of leading a consistent Christian life seem almost impossible. Like the Hebrew Christians who were the first recipients of this letter, we need to be reminded that in Christianity we have a greater priest and a greater covenant. We need to be reminded of all that we have learned from this passage about our great high priest and about the enduring and effective covenant he has inaugurated. Where else can we find peace with God, forgiveness of sin, transformational change, and eternal life? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let's not choose the light of a 60-watt bulb in preference to that of the sun. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come into your presence with confidence and even with boldness because of our great high priest. We thank you tonight for his sacrifice, the sacrifice that fully, that fully atones for sin and makes it possible for sinners like us to draw near to you, the holy God. We thank you for the new covenant, that covenant under which your law is written on our hearts and on our minds. May we appreciate these things for what they are, and may we live in the good of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.